Well, there can't be a statute of limitations if this is about justice and that you're going to give people money if they were damaged. So what's that going to do with the, the price of eggs? It's now a big deal, big issue, and uh, this isn't this isn't going anywhere, any place good. Hey, Rick Bicotta, Greg Henry, the first issue of 2018. Greg, hello, I'm nice to see you. Rick, I can't believe that we're in, in the middle of our 11th year of doing this. Jingle bells, all that sort of thing. You know, I'm sitting in Michigan right now where <laughs> actually there is snow up to our butt and all that thing, all that stuff. But let's just... Uh, don't give me any crap about how beautiful the weather is in L.A. I know that half of L.A. is burned down in the last two weeks. Yeah, Jerry, Ho- Jerry Hoffman has been out of his house for about at least a week and a half. He lives up in Santa Barbara where the rich people live. Well, the rich people are basically their houses are um, in danger. But uh, Yeah, they've I been think- threatened, right? Yes. All right. Well, let's, let's uh, move along here. And by the way, before we get started, it was a great a great boot camp a few weeks ago that uh, you held. And uh, I'll tell you, I don't understand why every PA and NP in the country has not been to the complete boot camp series because it is excellent. Yeah, we did have uh, 820 people, and you were a major part of that, Greg. And I want to thank you. You did a great job. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, dodging rotten vegetables <laughs> takes a lot of work at my age, and uh, I'm glad you recognize this. You've yeah, really gotten quite good at it. Listen, the other <laughs> yes. thing is, is, before we get started, it is um, what happens on uh, December 25th? Uh, oh, oh my God. That's, uh, well, uh, there are two things that happen, two major men involved. Uh, <laughs> one, Christ, of course, and the other one, it's my birthday, but uh, there's... Uh, uh, and, and in case anyone wants to send presents, we'll give them an address, but they've missed it now. This is the January issue, Rick. Although that's, that's true. Although this is December 18th. Uh, yes. You and I know that. You know. Yes. You and I know that. <laughs> so, and, and Greg will be happy to accept gifts after the fact. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. Off All we right, go. Listen, Let's get going. It's a know, big month, big month. Lots yeah, of stuff. There is a ton of stuff here. I did want to follow up a little bit on this communication and resolution program stuff because, um, and I know it's a little annoying and we beat this thing into the ground and your friend, Mr. Boothman down the street is kind of one of the guys, but here's a paper that talks about what do the patients think of these things? And it's, uh, in, in JAMA internal medicine back in November, it, uh, it looked at 27 patients from three hospitals over a six month period of time and, and, and three relatives and yeah. 10 Ten of the hospital staff. I was going to say, can you spare it? You know, you know, it's hardly Rick, anything. Rick, you realize I'm having to hold myself back from criticism of this. Well, paper. You, you you are going to be able to uh, criticize, uh, as you know. Um, yes. All of these people had accepted a payment. It also said, or there was a statute of limitations. Well, there can't be a statute of limitations if this is about justice and that you're going to give people money if they were damaged. So what's that going to do with the, the price of eggs? But, so uh, I, I, but I didn't Rick, bother looking at it Rick, up. this is the real world, and there is a statute of limitations. Uh, and uh, it shouldn't, you're right, in a just world, it shouldn't matter. Yeah, find that one for me, will you? Uh, it does matter, but go ahead. Right, uh, so tell, tell them the results. 18 patients and family members of the 30 
that they had, consider the uh, interaction to be positive. That means almost half of them didn't. Uh, satisfaction was highest when communication was perceived to be empathetic and non-adversarial, including when they were negotiating dollar amounts. Patients and families expressed a strong desire, this is not going to happen, to be heard and expected the physicians to listen without interrupting. <laughs> you know, yeah. 35 of the 40 respondents believed that the that including the plaintiff's attorneys was uh, helpful. That included the 10 hospital uh, employees that it, they included in the survey, which is kind of interesting. I think it, you know, it's probably true. About half of the 30 patients, family members, deemed their compensation to be adequate. But 17 reported that the offer was not sufficiently proactive. Proactive. What does that mean? Uh, inadequate? <laughs> well, I, I think that's the case. Or, and they probably didn't. Uh, quick. Uh, they did not come forward quickly enough. And as uh, Boothman often points out, uh, apology delayed is apology denied. Um, if you know something and you don't get in on the top of this thing, uh, you haven't done it right. And if we need anything to prove that sort of stuff, it's what's going on now with everybody apologizing for this, that, and another thing in um, in uh, sexual assault and aggression in the news media. And in, uh, your your place in uh, Los Angeles there has become Sodom and Gomorrah for this <laughs> sort of stuff. Well, I'm waiting. Uh, I'm waiting for your uh, release of information. You know, yes, it hasn't occurred yet. But yeah, they also pointed out that there was a strong desire for the patients and family to know what the hospital did to prevent recurrence of the error. In fact, 24 of the 30 never heard anything about that. And 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 this is in hospital talk. One of the major reasons to do this is we want to identify problems and fix them. Well, they didn't fix them. Well, let's, you, you know, this is the important part of this paper. They didn't know what good their suffering had done, how it actually made things better for other people. And as you and I are talking right now, Rick, they're cleaning up the train mess in uh, between uh, Seattle, Washington and Portland, Oregon, where somehow the train was going 80 miles an hour instead of 30 around a curve. We've seen this over the years. They've invented things to replace this. And then they came on the news. It wasn't two hours ago and said, oh, we hadn't turned on the automatic train control mechanism. What do you need? How many of these do you need before you decide to turn this thing on? I mean, it's unbelievable to me. And uh, God, there's got to be attorneys lining up from one end to the other to deal with that thing. Oh my God, it's awful. Um, well, yeah, and so uh, that that was a, a significant uh, problem because you're right. The people want to know what did you do. However, since misdiagnosis is a frequent cause of error, uh, how do you fix misdiagnosis? You send these guys back to medical school. Well, I, whether it's misdiagnoses, it may be miss uh, a point, not with the exact diagnosis, but in the algorithm to go back to a point and start over again and think about it. It's not so much you don't get the diagnosis at, at moment one. It's whether you've laid the groundwork to re-question yourself if it isn't going right. 
go back, look at it again, and and move ahead. You know, uh, you and I have both been in that situation where a fresh set of eyes, the guy coming on to relieve you, they walk in, they hear the story, and they haven't been prejudiced by all the thoughts that you've had along the way. I think that's uh, tremendously useful stuff. I, I, I don't think it's the exact diagnosis. You know, it's like appendicitis. Everybody thinks about it. When do you decide to make a decision and go in? And that means you got to sometimes go back over your materials. Hey, you know, uh, uh, in our primary care publication, there was a, a actually there were a couple of studies that suggested that when one doctor was on vacation and they had another doctor coming in to substitute for that doctor, he saw these people in totally different eyes because it's the first time he sees them and he's not biased by the diagnosis too much of the prior doctor. And they, and they make all kinds of diagnoses that, that the other doctor, the regular doctor did not make because fresh set of eyes. You're right. So tell you know, us there's... about this lady who beat the, beat them, beat them up. Well, you know, they did put, in all honesty to the journal, they put in an accompanying editorial entitled Communications and Resolution Programs, dot, 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 the jury is still out. Uh, Chuckle, chuckle. Chuckle, chuckle, a little humor here. And I think it's, I think their analysis is fair. This is done by a gal by the name of Catherine Zeller, who, of course, is an attorney. Now, they don't identify her as whether she's a plaintiff attorney, a defense attorney, but she pointed out the flaws of the study. I mean, you know, she and Jerry Hoffman would get along pretty well on this issue. One, it's three hospitals, Rick. It's 20, it's 30 people. We wouldn't respect that kind of those numbers in any other form of science. Why do we think it's good in this one? 70% were women. I don't know why that is. And they tended to be sort of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants here. Um, You would not have this patient population in Southern California. So, and there's a lot of social variables as to whether we put up or don't put up with Dr. Ayers. And almost 80% of them were college educated. Now, if you think back over all of the patients we've seen and things that were done wrong, I don't think this is representative of the uh, of the people involved. Less than a third of the patients and the family members had legal representation. Less than a third. Now, I know Boothman will tell you the reason they get in early and apologize is so families feel they don't need to get representation. This gal's an attorney. Her view of it is, is they should have all had representation listening to the discussion. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. By the way, hospitals have incentives to offer less than courts would award. Now, she says in this article that courts would award. Courts don't award anything. Juries award things. Judges don't award things. The bailiff doesn't award things. The jury award things. And she says the hospital's only aspect here, uh, important aspect, is getting it for less money. money. Many aspects of these programs, um, their goal is to spend less money taking care of the problem at the bedside than if they had to litigate it. And I, I understand that. And it's not unreasonable. Uh, by the way, 
it is known that only a small percentage of injured patients actually sue. We don't know what the universe is out there of people who doctors realize they've screwed up on, and then and then uh, nothing is ever said, any, anything is mentioned. She points out this may actually drive more money being spent simply because uh, now these people who wouldn't have thought it went wrong and wouldn't have brought something have now been told it's time to sue. That's that's exactly right. This is a fascinating uh, point of view because if you follow the protocol faithfully, every error that occurs in the hospital gets reported by somebody. They ascertain whether somebody got hurt as a result of that error. And if they got hurt, they're offered compensation. So this may open the dam for all kinds of people because, yes, she's exactly right. Only a small percentage of people who are hurt litigate this would this would is i think a really uh, important point yeah i i think there's a way that this thing may bite you in the butt by the way she states one she cites one study that claims that preventable medical error is the third most common cause of death in the u.s whenever i see those kinds of numbers uh, you know i you remember the the famous study that said doctor errors are the same as uh plowing 50 747s into a mountain over the period of the year, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, I, I got it. I got it. You, you remember that. Yeah. yeah. And I don't agree. And it, and it sounds absurd. And it I sounds agree. absurd. And by the way, she notes that no, but this is a good point. Occasionally your enemy points out the stuff that you ought to hear. Your friends never do. They're too nice to you. But she notes that there's been no paper published that shows any decrease in injuries or mistakes or screw-ups because these programs have existed. See, she's looking for the other shoe to drop, which is we found these 45 cases and we've made these changes in the hospital and looked over five years, and by God, we cut them out. She says there is no paper like that, and I tend to agree with her on that point because the if the goal is better patient care, show us they can talk about the money they've saved. Are they actually producing a better product? And that's not what's covered in this. You know, paper. one of the points in this paper that I thought also was interesting <laughs> she, uh, is, um, well, there are people who are hurt and they re, uh, they're supposed to be compensated. She said that in many cases, if the hospital intuits that the person who was hurt is really not looking for any money, they will not be offered any money. Any money, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's sort of like, what do you want? What's fair? Well, in any event, uh, this this uh, program and this controversy is going to go forward. Uh, it's going to take time and real data and some skill to know whether, A, number one, we've cut out lawsuits, and number two, we've changed behavior of physicians and hospitals so we don't hurt anybody. No, I like the idea that she says, listen, if you fix all these problems and don't spend much money on it, then your incentive to fix the problem that that, that uh, caused the, the situation is not going to be there. If you lose a lot of money in a litigated case in a courtroom, it, it will probably substantially alter your incentives. Well, that's her opinion. <laughs> yes. but, but as she says, show me the data. 
Yes. Show me the money where you've actually improved care. Enough of this. We beat yeah. this one. Hey, but listen, I on. promise. I promise we're not going to talk about these uh, communication and resolution programs anymore. We're done. I, I'm yeah. sick of it. At least right. for a couple of months. Yeah, go all ahead. Right. Let's move on. Um, did you see, you know, I sent out this all points bulletin, but I think that it went out too late for the East Coast. Uh, there's a 60 minutes segment this past Sunday. This past Sunday was December 17th, where the DEA basically had investigated McKesson for distributing their big distributors that are the fifth largest uh, employer in the country, 75,000 employees, distributed narcotics to these tiny little pharmacies way out of proportion that they could uh, ever be expected to use. And they just uh, basically ignored any kind of threshold that said, uh, we think there's a problem here. And, and in fact, when they saw that the, the pharmacy was exceeding the threshold and what it was ordering and buying, they upped the threshold. That's, yes, that was exactly. how they fixed it. Well, the joke is, do you honestly think that Hibbing, Minnesota needs five million, <laughs> you know, Percocet tablets? Yeah, they were having a big truckload of Percocet <laughs> go out there to Oklahoma City kind of thing. In any case, yeah, yeah. This this show detailed this ironclad investigation <laughs> that the DEA had made against McKesson, and basically they said we got these guys. They wanted a $1 billion fine. At least, actually, they wanted a $1 billion. And they wanted people to go to jail because this was aiding and abetting this uh, opioid crisis. People were dying, and, and this was all about McKesson just didn't seem to care. But in any case, the gist of the show was uh, the uh, DEA and the attorney general lawyers ultimately decided that taking on McKesson was too big, too dangerous. They had a bajillion lawyers. It was going to go drag out for years. And so what happened is they wound up giving McKesson $150 million slap on the wrist, which is what they make in about a week. It is $50 million more than the CEO of McKesson makes. And it was basically a drop in the bucket. And it was a really embarrassing segment showing the power of these big corporations to get the government to back off. You know, I, I saw the uh, piece, and much of it I agree with. Much of it uh, uh, is is important for us to look at the drug industry, but it's just as important, Rick, for you, you and I to look at doctors. I mean, they say, well, we they hid the possible side effects of and, and the and the problems with opioids. I don't know. I've known about those since I was in medical school. I've known you can get hooked. I know you never give a prescription for more than ten of them, and then they got to come back. What the hell is? Do we think if there's new information about about getting hooked? on opioids that, well, you know, that has come out. That is part of this ever-growing finger-pointing. They're going to basically, we know that we got the pill mill doctors, we got the Tug Valley pharmacies, we got r normal doctors giving out way too many pills. I told you I had my arthroscopy, the guy gave me 50, 50 uh, Viking, and it didn't, I didn't need one. We got crooked pharmacies. We have wholesalers who want to sell lots of stuff. It's like everybody is, got, it, is screwing up here. As I was uh, uh, getting into the shower this morning, getting out, drying off, the big headline, the first thing coming on the radio was 
10 cities in the state of Michigan banded together to sue four or five different uh, pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical companies over this opioid addiction. Now, the state of Michigan is already suing these companies, but these individual cities said, no, we have a separate financial interest because we paid for the jail time. We paid to investigate uh, uh, stick-ups and knifings and and thievery. We're going to go after it as these 10 cities. Now, what I think is in law is like is like every other thing. Once somebody hears about it and it's a good idea, I think there's going to be just an avalanche of these suits, uh, and there's going to be an avalanche. I, I know they've state of Michigan has filed against forty or fifty doctors in the last two weeks uh, about them getting patients hooked. I think this is. This is going to be big time stuff. An emergency docs, we got to take something out of all this stuff. The first thing you take out of it is, you know what, guys? There's no reason for you to be a part of the chain of addiction. If they uh, if if they need more than two days of pain medicine, they need to be back and reexamined and have a doctor who's going to handle handle them over a period of time. Deal with long term pain management concepts. And I think I think we need that. You know, you mentioned uh, Michigan. Uh, Ohio is also suing five drug companies. They basically claim false marketing ads in medical journals playing down the addictiveness of these drugs and the use of uh, physicians and front groups to boost prescriptions of uh, opiates. Yeah, uh, no, no. I, I think I think that I think that what we're seeing here is almost a hysteria about this, Rick. Uh, again, no real new information. We know it's bad. We know it's a problem. And every, every state's attorney general is going to be looking to see if they can get in on these big class actions against the drug companies. In fact, I, I think the great new news, so we'll segue here into this, is uh, four West Virginia cities are suing the Joint Commission. What next? <laughs> what next? They're suing the Joint Commission on this exact same issue. This is in the December issue of Emergency Physicians Monthly. Two of our friends, and in all fairness to disclosure, both Rick and I have written for EP Monthly, but two of our friends there, Bill Sullivan <clears throat> and Logan Plaster, wrote a detailed article on what these cities are doing, and I want to compliment them on keeping it pretty straightforward, not a lot of emotion, but they give you the facts, and that is the Joint Commission came down on all of our butts about the fact that you doctors don't care enough about people's pain, and you're not treating pain, and they're having all this pain. We've been through 20 years of articles about emergency doctors, you know, you, you gave pain medication to uh, only 22% of Hispanics and black patients, but you gave it to 42% of white patients. Now we realize the white patients got the worst care. Maybe the Hispanic and black patients got better care by not getting as much pain medicine. So the Joint Commission, which burned all of us, going through and said, 
oh, did they have pain when they do this and do that? This is all kind of quietly going away now at the Joint Commission. Yeah, and the, fifth, the fifth vital sign the, uh, just, just went away someplace. I'm yeah. not sure where it is, but it's not yeah. out there anymore. Yeah, well, actually, it was the sixth vital sign because Pulse Ox had already taken over. But you're right. As a vital sign, I think it's critical that you ask about pain. But you can solve some pain problems, uh, particularly longer-term ones, without an opioid. And I, th I think that we have to ask a lot more questions about the situation, how long we're treating pain. But I think it was interesting that they decided to go after the Joint Commission because what they had done to hospitals, the, the regulations, not only the regulation, but the things they cited as variances for not treating pain um, well, you know, they uh, aggressively. They point out that hospitals, uh, they shake in their boots when the Joint Commission says anything because their hospitals are so uh, beholden to the Joint Commission because if you don't pass the Joint Commission uh, a survey, you don't get to see Medicare and Medicare patients, and you are therefore shut down. So the threat of the Joint Commission over the hospitals has been really, really uh, uh, great, and therefore any of the promulgations of the Joint Commission are taken disproportionately seriously. So that was one of the allegations. They also said, and this is really this is really interesting, that the Joint Commission partnered with Purdue Pharma. Purdue is not the chicken people. This is, yeah, is yeah, in this yeah, case. Yeah, right. Uh, who were, were making OxyContin, and, and that OxyContin folks were in some way funding some of this PR campaign of the Joint Commission related to oligoanalgesia. And yeah. so uh, there are some kind of uh, interesting financial relationships coming up here that, you know, I don't think sound too good. Well, the joint, the uh, CDC sent the Joint Commission a series of criticisms about their support for pain management and how they were overboard and this, that, and other this wasn't this wasn't some fringe group. This was the Centers for Disease Control said, you don't understand what's happening here. And essentially, the Joint Commission ignored them. And now they're going to get back at them. It's now a big deal, big issue. And uh, this isn't this isn't going anywhere, any place good for the Joint Commission. I'll tell you that right now. Let's do a, a few cases uh, from our friend Mike Ritter. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, this is from the Horty Springer newsletter, uh, December 7th. Uh, two cases on Imtala. The first Imtala case was brought by a pregnant patient, catch this, <laughs> who was discharged from the emergency department after being in there for five hours and delivered her baby at home two hours later. Now, do you think that lady was in active labor? I don't know. In any case, the claim, the claim was improper screening and stabilization. Yeah, the hospital's motion to dismiss this was denied. Well, that's a that surprise. The question probably is: Was the patient not in active labor? She must have been. She didn't, she went to the emergency department for something. You think it was an earache? Uh, no, I I think that more likely than not, it had something related to do with this pregnancy. Okay, repeat of the principle. You do not have to have any harm done. Oh, no. No, no. 
See what you did. What you did. It's like a not stopping at a traffic light, and the cop pulls you over. You didn't hit anybody. Nobody hit you, but there was a potential for harm. That's what they're punishing you for. Well, this happened in this case. Baby's fine. The right. problem is, if they're in there, and two hours later they deliver. Now, you and I all know have been associated with grand multips who sort of know they're delivering. Come and, on, Greg. This is a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> so five hours, five yeah. hours in the ER. We're going to discharge you. And she delivers two hours later at home. Now, now that I think would be classified as inadequate <laughs> evaluation and stabilization. I, it probably is. And we'd have to go through all the details. But what our members, our listeners need to know um, is that it's not about the damages in an exactly. case. That's a separate issue. If the kid had had major problems in delivery, there'd be a civil, concomitant civil suit on that. Didn't happen. In fact, on the first Mtala case, which was ever promulgated, <clears throat> um, which was the Patrick case in Texas, uh, a, a patient was sent by ambulance like 150 miles. And in Texas, all they got is miles and miles of miles and miles. And the kid did deliver and was just fine. That wasn't the issue. It's, did you do the proper screening and stabilization? And that was the entire issue. Yeah, it's very clear. If you speed and get a ticket and nobody's hurt because you sped, uh, it's not the issue. You sped. And this is that's the same thing that occurs. You don't need a bad outcome to uh, get an Amtala investigation and fine. There's a second case that he did, Greg. Why don't you yeah, tell yeah. us about I, that? I got that one, yeah. Um, the second case involves a trauma patient who was screened by a PA who determined the presence of a variety of serious injuries. The patient claims that the PA had screened him, uh, had, had screened uh, but that the proper examination, I guess that's also passing this on to the doc and doing other thing, was not performed. Uh, this this part of the action was dismissed. They say had, they had done a screening examination. And remember, the hospital board of directors can name a nurse, a PA, an NP, or a physician as being qualified to do the the uh, screening examination. On the other hand, the patient claimed that the patient was uh, uh, was admitted from the ED prior to stabilization, and that led to blood loss and ultimately resulting in amputation of the legs. So we have a major harm done in this case. And when you think about it, this patient got admitted to the hospital. While there was active bleeding going on, which, by the way, even the patient agrees the PA had <clears throat> determined that there were major injuries. Now the patient's going to lose their legs. You don't know what the interaction was here between the doc and the PA, or maybe they admitted this to a surgeon or someone who's supposed to check them immediately and they didn't. But in any event, the stabilization claim held. Well, the things that uh, are taken on here as well is 
there was some issue regarding how long the patient was in the emergency department. Uh, because the record could not determine the time of admission, nor the patient's status at that time, nor the steps that the hospital had taken, doesn't sound like they did any freaking charting well, here. Yes, exactly. The hospital's motion to dismiss was said, no, 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 no. We got to sort this out. We're going to yes. go to trial. Yeah. Why is anybody surprised if if the hospital can't even determine how long you've been there, what we've done, who we called? <laughs> they think they're just going to say, well, we don't have a record of this, so you can't really find fault with us. No, that's that's not the era we're living in. <laughs> and uh, uh, this this hospital is going to uh, take it in the shorts on this one. So, Rick. Mike, Mike Ritter, uh, Mike Ritter also sent us a, a new source of cases. It's called juryverdictalert.com. Mm -hmm. And I went on to it. It looked like it was California-specific cases. There was one that was, when they do these cases, they do them in extraordinary detail, uh, which is unlike most of the cases that we get where there's just a little blip of uh, stuff. Right. This was a case of a, a seven-year-old child who was uh, brought to the emergency department by his parents and grandmother with a chief complaint of sudden onset of blood in the mouth and fussiness. Wait, so how old did you say this child was? Seven weeks. Seven weeks. Seven weeks, okay. right. So now we got something that is fragile and small and tiny. And as soon as a kid is under two months, you know, I, I'm interested. <laughs> There's something wrong. Well, this kid was obviously teething, and that's why the blood was in his mouth, right? No. no. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> the clinician's chart noted no blood in the mouth, but the nurse's notes, here you go, where you got to look at those nurse's notes, observe blood in the mouth, bruises on the face, and an injury about the eye, which the teenage mother ascribed to the child hitting himself in the face with his hands. Now, stop. I, I've taken care of kids for... <laughs> my, my all my career a, as of next year uh, when i started medical school i've been involved in this for 50 years a seven a seven day old uh, Wait, seven a weeks week seven weeks seven week old does not punch themselves in the face to cause bruising and bleeding from the mouth have you ever heard of that rick no this is uh and the sad part about this is that this is a disconnect the nurse basically gathered a a, a bunch of useful information, which the nurse documented. And it appears that the physician, and by the way, it was a nurse practitioner and the physician seemed to kind of in, in their chart did not acknowledge any of this stuff. You know, it, it, a teenage mother, very young. Uh, I don't know whether it was her first child or second child, but I mean, there's huh. something going on here that we need some interdiction on, even if it's just some mothering technique, some discussion about this or that. This is this is a problem. What's worse is you've got a nurse's note that finds trauma to this face in multiple areas, and it's at variance with the doctor note. If the plaintiff's counsel in this case could take them apart on this, this is not a good idea. If you read the nurse's note and just go back and say, show me the trauma, show me the bruising, at least there'd be some communication there as to what's going on. This is a non-communication case. And you wonder, why do we have a chart? 
What's it uh, for? A month later, the child was seen in a family practice clinic where no record of facial bruising was indicated. <laughs> About two weeks later, the child was taken to the emergency department again, this time with a spinal cord injury at T2, broken clavicle, two broken ribs, and extensive bru bruising over much of his body. The child is now uh, adopted by his foster parents. The name of the child has been changed. Uh, he's six years old. He's paralyzed, but can use his arms. I did see on the internet a picture of this kid, and he looks like a, just a, a happy uh, kid who's in a wheelchair. But um, And his, this mother who adopted him, this foster mother, is basically a saint because, you know, there's a lot of work. and But, but the love that she poured out to this kid who had been brutalized <laughs> by his parents is just remarkable. Yeah, by the way, you realize that in the state of Michigan, and I think in most states, uh, you cannot profit, uh, you cannot receive money uh, for having committed a crime. Most people in the country understand that from the old O.J. decisions, that when O.J. was going to write his book and all this sort of thing, it was clearly... He did write it. He did I didn't write do it. it. Didn't he write it? Called, I didn't he do did. it or something like no, that? No, if I had done it, right. Oh. And, and uh, but... It was immediately brought up um, that said, if there's any money generated by this book, it goes to pay the people he's damaged over his life. It cannot go to him. So in this case, if there's money going to be produced, at least they've got foster parents who've now got to raise a child uh, who from the just about the nipple line down has has uh, no sensation and no motor activity. This 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 is a sad case. Well, listen. Uh, why don't you tell us? Uh, you want me to you want me to finish up this case? No, no. I mean, I'm happy to to get my uh, get my steam up here. The plaintiff's contentions were that Child Abuse and Neglect Reporting Act required that the hospital. And the Emergency Medical Corporation, which, which of course supplies the doctor, had a, an affirmative duty to start child abuse proceedings. Now, remember, a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or a dentist or a social worker, all of whom are required, you never claim that child abuse exists. What you do is say there's enough suspicion to, to prompt us to do a proper investigation. If you'd called someone in on a seven-week-old and, and with bruising and blood in the mouth, they would have probably been <clears throat> taken from the home in a reasonable amount of time. And we know the fracture didn't take place for a month. Yeah, they had a testimony from some Child Protective Services people that said, had we been notified about this case, it would have been put into uh, foster care. Um, they also, the other thing that I thought is unique, because this is a California case, is that uh, they say that the emergency department corporation and the hospital must provide to its employees the rules about child abuse reporting and the law and have us sign that you have gotten it and I understand it. And I, it's really interesting because I was the director of the department for 25 years. And um, unless this is new, which I kind of doubt it, they basically want 
your doctors, your and your PAs and MPs to sign a document acknowledging that my obligation to report suspected child abuse. And here it is in writing. That's my name on it. So you can't say I didn't know. Right. And you can well, you. That's you true can, with all this stuff, Rick. I mean, come on now. You know what a reportable illness is. You know, gunshot wounds have to be reported. Stab wounds have to be well, reported. Slow down. I think that the, the point is, is that you may or you may not know uh, all of these. The fact of the matter is, is that I can see an ER director handing you a sheaf of papers saying, here's all the rules that we expect you to abide by. Sign here, sign here, sign here. And that's what, it, 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 that's what these guys are saying that it's required that you acknowledge that you have been given information regarding child abuse laws and mandatory reporting in the state of California, which is, I frankly, I never did that. Well, I, I, I think that a lot of these things have changed from our young days. It's not a bad thing. What was pointed no. out, by the way, is the child did have, as was pointed out, if they had kicked off a protocol for child abuse and done a uh, a plain x-ray skeletal survey, you know, low radiation, plain x-rays. <laughs> there were two fractures on this child, which were a little bit mature that would have been picked up that night. Now, whether that's true or not is probably not as important as the fact that social services would have been involved and would have at least you had some help in making a decision is, can we place this child? This is... You know, I think this is a sad case, uh, and it's uh, it's it's not it, it's not without sign the realm of what we should be doing as emergency personnel. Uh, first of all, I can't picture anybody finishing a training program in emergency medicine who hasn't been lectured to, taught, and seen in those three or four years child abuse. Well, you, you know. But it's a little unfair because what is the threshold? The, the doctor claims that I didn't see any blood in the mouth. And I guess the doctor claimed I didn't see any uh, evidence of bruising or petechiae or things like that. The nurse's notes nailed that doctor, unfortunately, it, and that NP. Yeah, it's not the nurse's notes nailed him. The fact that she, that he or she did not convey that information in some way to the doctor. I, I mean, there is an honest question to ask in front of a jury. It, why do we have the nurse write down their findings if nobody's going to pay attention to it? See, I don't think that would go well in a courtroom. I think you can paint these people as, you know, punching their ticket, mailing it in, but not actually caring about the outcome. I'd love to give the the closing argument in this case, Frank. This um this juryverdictalert.com gets a lot into <laughs> the uh, details of these cases and I I thought it was kind of interesting because we've not seen this before. With regard to the demands and offers made, the plaintiffs wanted the 1 million dollar policy limits of the NP and the and the physician that's all they were going to willing, you know, they said, you give us a million dollars and we'll be happy. And we've talked about this before about, uh, people stopping at the limits of your malpractice 
insurance. And that's maybe why you should not get $3 million insurance because they're going to say, okay, we want the 3 million, but you can see that there is some charity here in saying, just give us the, the, the limit of your claims and we'll be happy. That's, uh, and I think that's kind of interesting. Well, actually before trial, they pushed it up to trial. Uh, and now they're mad. Most people want what they deserve until they think it's been denied and then they want revenge. And so they pushed it up to $5 million. The verdict of, you want to give us the verdict, Rick, because they could have gotten out of this thing for probably $2 bucks. What did they spend? No, actually, the uh, plaintiff's final demand before the trial was, you give us $5.7 million and we'll go away. And the uh, hospital and, and the, said, it's not going to happen. The verdict, uh, $8.4 million. Big mistake. Yeah. Big mistake. Well, you know, uh, sometimes uh, attorneys and administrators uh, need to let their egos go and sit back. And here's the question I would ask the jury. What would you take if it was your kid to raise them you know, having no control of the lower half their body, what would you take? Then take that much money and award it to these new foster parents. I, you know, this, you know, and now I want you to try this um, in December, uh, just before Christmas with the kid in his, in his Christmas outfit. You know what? (laughs) they made a bad decision in not coming up with a number. In this case, the jury wasn't going to put up with it. The uh, 4.1 of that award was for economic damage (laughs) and 4.3 was for non-economic damages. Now uh, help me out here. 4.3 for non-economic damages. Uh, In California, we have a $250,000 cap on pain and suffering. Now, how does that work here, Greg? Do you have any well, idea? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think what they would say is, you're right, this child, uh, the medical costs may be $4 million throughout his life. And you know what? I think that's probably uh, a perfectly reasonable number. These people get infections. They get this. They get that. No, they're hospitalized. I, I agree. The kid's in a wheelchair. I, I got that. But the but 4.3 is lost opportunity. You know, he could have been uh, second base for the uh, New York Yankees or something like that. They can give lost opportunity, and I think that's what happened in this case. Did this was this case a California case, Rick? Yes, it was, and it's interesting. The uh, this website gives such details. I know the names. I know the ER group. I, I um, you they've named. All names. They had 17 experts in this trial. Trial lasted 20 day, 20 days. Jury deliberated 12 hours over three days. 17 experts, Greg. 17 yeah. experts. Yeah, yeah. No, no. This is painful stuff, Rick. And uh, sometimes uh, it, they ask me a lot now because uh, I don't go to trial as the primary expert on new cases anymore. I finished up the old stuff. But if they brought me this case... And at, for the sec for the objective stand back opinion, 
I'd have said, you know what? Find a way to settle this because this isn't pleasant for anybody, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah, unfortunately, right, they had the um, they had the balls to basically think that uh, they would do better in front of a jury. A kid gets wheeled in six years after his injury. This case went on forever, by the way. This case was settled in October when this kid was, this kid started out at seven weeks is when the, when this thing happened. And now it's, he's six years old and it gets settled in October of 2017. Uh, it goes on forever, doesn't it? Okay. You want to uh, do another case here? Chuck well, well, this one, oh, this is uh, Chuck. Yeah. Do another case, Rick. Chuck Pilcher uh, has this free newsletter called medical malpractice insights in your, your uh, show notes. You'll, uh, see uh the link on how to get on it yeah we've 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 beaten up on chuck before for giving away free stuff uh <laughs> and, and we try and make a living doing this and i'd really be mad except that chuck's stuff is good he's a nice guy well, the, and and he's he's a good person well what makes it worse is we're taking his stuff a, exactly and, and we're trying to sell it yes right <laughs> we're turning it into profit oh god and listen, this is the, well, I, the reason I'm d- doing this case is I have a liberal, little different spin here. Uh, this is an 18 year old African-American college student who became ill with symptoms of uh, sore throat chills and lower back pain. This is a, a woman, right? A female. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. On being seen, she had a fever with rigors and muscular back pain. After three hours, she was discharged with the diagnosis of the flu. This is school. This is during the school year. You know, maybe, maybe it was the flu. Who knows? Anyway, later that day, she was found unresponsive in her dorm room and pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. I hate it when that happens. I just hate it. Ruins it. Ruins your whole weekend when they say to you, "Greg, you remember that gal <laughs> you saw?" And 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 they found her dead. Oh, no good. Uh, the autopsy found petechia and disseminated meningococcal infection. Uh, apparently, there was a known outbreak of meningitis at the university. She was the fourth of seven to become ill, but she didn't have meningitis, and she was checked for that. The other people had meningitis, and so there is this distinction between meningococcal meningitis and meningococcemia. They are not one in one kind of thing. So she didn't have meningitis according to this this doctor uh, she had the flu um, yes the assertion could be that she had an inadequate workup on the part of the defense she was checked clinically for meningitis and she didn't have a rash uh or petechiae however the award was 1.5 <laughs> million dollars after a three-week trial and six hours of deliberation uh chuck makes the point that you know if the hosp- if the university is having a me- meningitis outbreak that that's kind of like a big deal and that you will have your antennas raised when somebody comes in who is sick and uh, you'll be checking them out for sickness in general not just meningitis because this did, kid didn't have meningitis no what they probably died of and uh, you know I have to go back through my memory banks because we've wiped out a lot of uh, meningococcal meningitis, but they get a Waterhouse Friedrichsen syndrome, and uh, sometimes it doesn't settle in in the brain and the meninges. It's it settles down in their adrenal glands, 
And it sounds to me that's what happened with this person. They didn't go through the meningitis phase. They went right to being wiped out at the adrenal level. Uh, You know, but I've seen these cases go. I always remember one. I was very young in the business. I saw a young woman, black female, 18, exactly like this, who I had a few spots uh, of petechiae on, and I begged her to stay. But, oh, no, she had to go, and she just wanted some antibiotics and get out the door. And <laughs> I, I actually called her up at home two hours later and said, I don't think you heard me. You need to come back. And her mother says, I've got a shaker to wake her up. Oh, God. I said, just call the ambulance and come on back. And, you know, God's kind. And uh, we did bring her back, start her IV uh, antibiotics, and she was fine. She got a 100% recovery. But it went that fast. It went within a few hours from not much to damn near dead. It frightens it frightens me today to think about it. Well, you know, uh, so I was the director for 25 years. We, I, I don't think that I recall any other case where we got into uh, medical legal trouble, but this was one of the cases. Uh, yeah. It was a y- young person, college, uh, a, a college student, came back visiting her family over Christmas and uh, got a flu-like illness and came to um, the local emergency department, which was not ours. She was sent out with a flu-like diagnosis and uh, went home, and this wasn't doing better. So they sent her to a better hospital, our hospital, of course, where they checked her out, and she was she was sick, and um, she ultimately uh, the uh, developed a petechiae, meningococcemia, and died uh, within like literally, you know, six, eight hours kind of thing. And so we get sued. And the question that was asked over and over and over again was when were the petechiae recognized? When were the petechiae recognized? Because the nurse had made some kind of note. Was that conferred to the doctor? Because the, it is generally agreed that when she arrived, she didn't have any. But, uh, but during that process of being in the ER, petechiae were noticed and developed. And she died. Um, Dave Tallon will tell you that once petechiae occur in meningococcemia, you are dead. Now, jury is not going to listen to that. Jury is going to say, well, the sooner we treat you, it's just logical that uh, your chances are better. And so these cases are very, very, very hard to defend because Dave Talon's <clears throat> data and knowledge on this just doesn't cut it with a jury when you have a dead you know, college kid. Yeah, that's the problem with these cases is they tend to be young. Uh, they tend to be wonderful folks they're in college it's the kind of thing that the juries have a tough time dealing with the fact that you know if we can put people on the moon how come we can't pick up meningococcemia and all i can say is uh there but for the grace i i mean i'm glad we now have uh ways to prevent it uh but um it was it was always frightening to me 
Should we do some other cases, Rick? Yeah, Are yeah, yeah, yeah. Paper? Yeah. All right. Here's a series of cases reported upon with acute compartment syndrome. Now, the authors are, oh, I love this when I saw the first name, Marchese. Um, this is an Italian paper. But, Rick, here's a, a, uh, a cognoscente culturate trivia question for you. Who, where would we hear the term Marchese? Eh, time's <laughs> up. All right. This is the, the setup here. This is the brand of fashion that um, that Harvey Weinstein's wife, now ex-wife or separated wife, she she is a fashionista and she puts out a line of clothes called Marchese. So at the Academy Awards, nobody asks what you're wearing. They say, who are you wearing? And the term Marchese is being used. We'll see this year whether anybody's in Marchese because, uh, uh, anyway, uh, just a little trivial fact. That was right. very trivial, very <laughs> trivial. I could okay. not have been responsive. I, 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 I'm, I'm floored that you know this. Okay. Uh, yes, it's almost, of it's, almost, it's almost shameful. Uh, uh, this was published in the journal Injury, December 2014. It's an Italian paper that makes some good points. It only had 66 closed claims. And you've got to remember in Europe, they don't try a lot of stuff. So they're closed claims. Whether those were uh, claims put into the government, how they were processed, we don't know. But by way of introduction, remember that generally compartment syndromes develop in specific areas of the body where you've got tight binding layers, the intracompartmental pressures go up rapidly, and it can be a problem. Um, I had, when I used to train young emergency docs, I had a, an x-ray of a tib-fib fracture. And I said, right now, what's your biggest concern besides calling the orthopedic surgeon? And they'd say, well, they could get an infection, bones might be out of the skin. I said, no. Whenever you see that, assume there's a compartment syndrome till, till uh, proven otherwise. And still, I believe that the tibial um, fibular fractures are without a doubt the most common cause of uh, compartment syndrome. Is that, that's still true, isn't it, Rick? Yeah, and this guy says that the, uh, the frequency is between 25 and 9%, depending on who you read. So, yeah, we, we, we kind of know that. These fascia basically are like, uh, cannot expand. The pressure builds up, builds up, builds up. The fascia stretch as far as they go. And next thing you know, this microcirculatory um, compression now is resulting in macrovascular uh, compression. So that's why one of the last things to go is your pulse. But yes. you've had all of this pathology going on in the meantime that you have failed to recognize. And, 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 and one of the things that this is one of those pain out of proportion, pain out of proportion things is kind of like a red flag here. But people say, well, you got a broken tibia. That's why you got so much pain. No, I got a broken tibia, but I got a compartment syndrome that's killing me. Yes. And, and we you sort of remember that anytime you have a dislocation location, uh, of a knee, uh, a foot from an ankle sort of thing. It is the, it is the vascular component 
which is the one of importance. The orthopedic stuff is going to take months, operations, all that sort of thing. You just don't want a dead limb sitting there waiting for people. So the chart from a medical legal standpoint should comment on color. It should comment on how much pain they're in. It should comment on what we think the vascular supply is. All of these things are important in a compartment syndrome. I've also had a case where an emergency physician tried to take a compartment pressure, says the compartment pressure was normal. Now, what do you think the questions they asked him in court were, Rick? Uh, have you ever uh, taken one of these pressures before? <laughs> Nobody saw it done once. Uh, and, how and, confident and, were you in the results, doctor? Oh, he's confident, <laughs> even <laughs> though there, he's never done one. And was, See, are there any other findings consistent with the Parkman syndrome? In fact, it was felt like it was a concrete, the, the calf turned into a piece of concrete. There all consistent with it. And that was the obvious point through the deposition, which is, doctor, if you're doing a test, which you don't do very often, you're probably not, you, you have no idea how good you are at it. And you have five findings which are consistent. What do you believe? Uh, that case settled before it went to uh, trial, Rick. Let me just restate. So we get this pain out of proportion. I right, got that. <laughs> Pallor, paresthesias, yep. paresis. Now, I didn't know about this one. Pain on passive flexion or extension, palpably swollen or tense compartments, and finally, pulselessness. So yes, the normal but pressures- pulselessness is the last thing that happens. And by the time you've got no posterior tibial uh, pulse or uh, dorsalis pedis pulse, you in deep poo-poo at that point in time. And I think it's worthwhile to remember that your time to get this thing resolved and to save flesh, we're talking in the, you know, few hours range. And if they've already had a couple hours out in the field or wherever it is, um, you got to move along and get this thing done. Well, it would seem that uh, you should have one of these devices uh, and, and know how to use it in terms of measuring intercompartmental pressures or a low threshold for making a phone call to somebody with uh, expressing your concern. Yeah. And, and believe me, I think a lot of us are in the position where we don't do things enough to stay excellent at it. I mean, Rick, in your 25 years, how many pressures did you take in the anterior compartment to decide whether there was a, uh, compartment syndrome none zero well so zero so now we understand what the situation is and i'll tell you i also agree that I've, if i've got the right fracture right findings and i even had a compartment syndrome case i was an expert on where there was no fracture the kid had an overuse syndrome mm -hmm. yes uh yeah i think i've told that story and uh he was a football player a uh, tough, mean kid who never complained, and uh, he kicked 200 balls a night. Uh, he was a kickoff specialist and a guy who does uh, uh, field goals. And uh, they said, the x-ray is normal. You're okay. So he went home. Father called back because he knew this was a tough kid, and this kid's crying. 
Uh, and the nurse said, double up on the Vicodin tablets. And now they brought him back again four hours later, but now they're digging dead muscle out of his leg. It was not good. Uh, and I think that uh, when there's pain out of proportion, particularly a kid like that, ask some questions. By the yeah, way, I don't, yeah, the surgeon was not our friend at the time of trial on this case. There were a couple of points. Uh, early onset of symptoms was associated with the correct and timely diagnosis. Well, you know, okay. Uh, in half the cases, pain was the earliest symptom described as intense, progressive, and intolerable, with the remaining cases presenting with palpable muscle tension or paresis. So pain is it's not pain all the time. You never say everything all the time kind of thing. The most common error was misdiagnosis. With the remaining errors resulting in delays of surgery uh, that were cannot considered to be uh, uh, appropriate. Yeah, and by the way, the comment in all trials from the orthopedic surgeon is, if they'd only called me, I'd have been right in there five, maybe 10 minutes, take them to the operating room, and I would have saved their limb. That's none the stand. Yeah. None of the uh, physicians involved had access to a manometer, had access to. And I think that's that's different. It would seem to me that in the modern-day emergency department, you should have access to it. Whether you choose to use it or not uh, is another matter. Whether you choose to become facile or not in it is another matter. But to say, I could, you know, I didn't have access yeah, that, that that doesn't sound right. Greg, uh, I think there is uh, one more article here. Yeah, there's another article here. <clears throat> it asks the question whether physician decisions to admit chest pain patients would be less under a couple of conditions. For example, if there was no possibility of suit being sued and, and there's an acceptable misrate in the community of 1% to 2%, would you admit fewer patients for workup of chest pain? Well, the authors of this paper, <clears throat> this is uh, Brooker et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine, July 2015, looked over a three-month period at a major uh, academic medical center in New York City. <clears throat> in fact, I know this center. Uh, 259 uh, surveys were completed filled out and they to ask this question would it change admissions to the hospitals they uh, they said they had 45 full-time faculty uh, with an average experience of about seven years that's relatively young isn't it Rick I think it's very young uh, yes it's uh, I, I I really don't like to see these places where as soon as you complete your residency, you now work in the residency and you are now one of the assistant clinical professors. It's like when you do that a lot, you wind up getting a very young faculty and um, you need some gray hair around. Well, actually, I, I think everybody ought to have to go after graduation to uh, Keokuk or Ishpeming or one of those places and be a real doctor for a while because when you're in a center where it's too easy to get a resident consultation or a fellow consultation, clinical judgment uh, is is not as finely honed as if you have to put somebody in an ambulance and send them 
uh, 100 miles away. It's a different situation. But the bottom line was 30% of the of these patients would not be admitted if they were immune from malpractice and uh, suits, and 29% uh, said they wouldn't if it was an acceptable misrate in the community of 1% to 2%. So obviously, these things weigh on the physician's decision-making. And by the way, what's the immediate problem with this paper? It's in New York State. New York State is a well-known state for lawsuits. Uh, New York City is the epicenter of that for the state of New York. This isn't Texas. This isn't Georgia. Uh, but you can see that if you take those two things off of there, they'd reconsider the idea. Now, when they did this paper, all the new stuff coming out on the ultra-sensitive <clears throat> troponins was not available. I mean, this was not part of this, well, this program. Yeah. Uh, these these cases were not ST elevation MIs and STEMIs, any of those things. These were just, they, that wasn't there, but they were still concerned. And so these people are either going to be admitted to observation or to the hospital for further evaluation. Or the chest guys, pain unit or someplace, right. But these yeah. guys say you would not have even gotten in the building if uh, there was uh, no threat of suit against me or I was allowed to miss one per two or, or 2% and I wouldn't, it wouldn't come back to bite me. So, uh, I guess the imp implication here is that we would save huge amounts of money if, uh, we didn't have the fear of lawsuits or the necessity to make the diagnosis 100% of the time with no error. And that it would be, save a bajillion dollars. I, I don't think this fellow's eco economic uh, calculations make any sense, uh, frankly, right. yes. uh, in terms of how much money would be saved. But to tell you the truth also, I really don't know whether in fact these people would not have admitted 30% of their cases. I believe that there right now, there's a culture that you cannot change that says, this is what we do. And this is what it's expected of us. And I think that it's kind of easy to kind of say, well, what if um, uh, you didn't have any liability? It would be a, certainly a different thing to say, this is the real world. And uh, I, I don't know that saying what if really, really, it's kind of like make-believe. Um, the other thing is, uh, I am concerned that this is all faculty young faculty. And uh, one of the things they, they did not do over the 45 faculty, it would have been great to see how many, what the variability was. One doctor is going to admit everybody. Another doctor is going to admit nobody. The average was 30%, but I'm much more interested in what was the variability of 45 doctors? <clears throat> uh, I don't think there's any question that there are risk takers and risk avoiders and they, it does influence how you practice. Uh, just before we get to, it's about time for wine of the month, but before we get there, um, tomorrow I go to speak at a uh, residency program here in the state of Michigan, and they want one talk on some neurologic diseases, but they want another talk on all this problem with burnout and depression 
and post-traumatic stress disease in residents and young physicians as if they think they've invented something new. Uh, I'm going through a lot of my old fo uh, folders from 30 and 40 years ago when I was lecturing, and there it was sitting right on top. Recapturing job satisfaction in the emergency department. This talk was given at National ASAP 31 years ago, Rick. Mm. So if any of the kids think that this is new or different or that they've invented a new disease or problem, um, I think that's wrong. I think it's been there for a long time. There are people who are unhappy with their work. They don't know what much to do about it. But it was interesting that uh, the reason the resident called up and said, well, you got to talk about this because so many of our residents are depressed. I thought, oh, my God, they, th these children honestly believe they've invented a disease. What are your comments, Rick? Well, I was going through some of the EMA uh, articles in preparation for the courses that we're doing that's coming up. Would a, was that a plug or not? Um, yes, yes. It, and I found it's a paper. shameless. Yeah. I found a paper actually that said residency directors are not good at picking out the residents that they have that are burned out. Uh, and that if you want, I'll, I'll get that to you before you go to your um, class tomorrow. Let's just do David Dubois there. Can we do him? And we'll all be all done. David is basically asking, um, he's, yeah. he's, a, he's worked in the States here for, tw he worked in the States for 27 years. Now for the last seven years, he's worked in New Zealand. He's interested if we have any data on the frequency of lawsuits by country for emergency physicians who have been trained, residency trained, the differences in Australia, New Zealand, uh, and, and, uh, and the U S and he even mentions the U S territories. Greg, you, 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 you can't have any information on this. Yeah, yes, I do. I actually have done cases uh, for U.S. territories, particularly involving the U.S. military, which included Guam, uh, American Samoa. Uh, I mean, there are places out there where U.S. law does still hold sway. But I think whenever you look at uh, something like New Zealand or Australia – you're looking at totally different cultures and totally different ways of dispute resolution. Uh, no uh, physician in, in med school in New Zealand, and I've been eight times a professor in Australia, even thinks about the lawsuit situation. It's not a part of the culture. You wouldn't hear that come up. We could get sued if... Why? Because attorneys over there cannot sue for a percentage of the win. They, can, they do not have contingency law. They have, you can hire a lawyer, they get paid an hourly rate. And so the interest in chasing these cases down has kept most malpractice low. And it's low to the point where a lot of um, uh, emergency physicians have malpractice rates that are paid on their behalf of less than $1,000 a year. They just don't think about it. I think that we've done ourselves a disservice here, but <clears throat> most 
physicians in the uh, young physicians in the residencies don't actually hear the real numbers. Um, you actually are at less risk than you believe on a lot of cases, and it's it's not it's not just the the science and the this or that. There are so many other factors on getting sued, which other countries just don't care about. Hey, listen, they, you got they don't. Three months or uh, three minutes or wine of the month there, my friend. Three minutes. Three minutes. Okay. Talk fast. Uh, I was asked by a member of our staff back at the home office at the creamery where all of these programs are put together. Um, they knew I did wine of the month. Then I got a phone call. Someone asked, can you put together for me a case of, of red wines uh, that will go to my son-in-law and, uh, you know, they like wine, but we don't want to spend a lot of money. So I actually went down the list looking at, at uh, Parker and the wine advocate and a few other things and said, uh, where can we get reasonable wine for the money? Number one, it's American. Uh, we do produce excellent mid-range wines at the most reasonable prices in the world. Uh, excellent stuff. <clears throat> the Louis Martini Cabernet Sauvignon 2015. Great ratings, 15 bucks a bottle. Black Stallion, uh, Estate Wines, uh, their Cabernet was uh, at 24 bucks a bottle. The Decoy, and Decoy is becoming one of my go-to wines. Now, don't confuse Decoy... Uh, with Duckhorn. Duckhorn has become all fancy. They charge a lot of money. But Decoy is, again, a Sonoma wine. Sonoma County is always cheaper than Napa County. They have a Merlot there, which uh, we did a couple of bottles the other night, $21 for a wine that you got to consider to be absolutely fabulous. Now, the new one on the list <clears throat> is Rodney Strong. They have a cab, 2014, Sonoma County, again, 91 rating, 15 bucks a bottle. Rick, if you can't, you can't spend 15 bucks on a bottle for your friend, whoever it is, they ain't much of a friend. So I want you to take those back. The next time you go to the store, they're available everywhere, and you don't have to be ashamed to put these on the table. There you go. Greg, thanks so much. Uh, I want to wish you, this is a little perverse here but i do want to wish you a happy birthday uh, yes. coming up in the uh, you and the and the, the, and the jc yeah. and uh i think that's about it buddy thank you i i uh i have appreciated another uh, year of doing this with you and i hope we keep our our listenership going do we have some big things in the future to uh offer these folks to stay with us well, we have a new software program that we've written, and uh, I, I encourage all of you to uh, take a look. You can now listen to this on your phone, your tablet, your your watch, whatever you've got on that's connected to the internet. <laughs> and uh, so, no, that's the, uh, the search uh, of all of the notes is available. Uh, you can you can put in there. Uh, any kind of phrase, and you'll find it. And uh, I think that that's pretty pretty much it. All right. For both Rick and myself, 
we hope that 2018 is a great year and may all your suits be Brooks Brothers. Talk to you later. Uh, Bye-bye. Isn't that cute? See you, buddy.